The scripture reading for this morning comes from selected passages from Exodus chapters 33 and 34. Chapter 33, verse 1. Then the Lord said to Moses, Leave this place, you and the people you brought up out of Egypt, and go up to the land I promised on oath to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, saying, I will give it to your descendants. Verse 3. Go up to the land flowing with milk and honey, but I will not go with you, because you are a stiff-necked people, and I might destroy you on the way. When the people heard these distressing words, they began to mourn, and no one put on any ornaments. Verse 15. Then Moses said to him, If your presence does not go with us, do not send us up from here. How will anyone know that you are pleased with me and with your people unless you go with us? What else will distinguish me and your people from all the other people on the face of the earth? And the Lord said to Moses, I will do the very thing you have asked, because I am pleased with you, and I know you by name. Then Moses said, Now show me your glory. And the Lord said, I will cause all my goodness to pass in front of you, and I will proclaim my name, the Lord, in your presence. I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I will have compassion. But he said, You cannot see my face, for no one may see me and live. Then the Lord said, There is a place near me where you may stand on a rock. When my glory passes by, I will put you in a cleft in the rock and cover you with my hand until I have passed by. Then I will remove my hand, and you will see my back, but my face must not be seen. Chapter 34, verse 6. And he passed in front of Moses, proclaiming, The Lord, the Lord, the compassionate and gracious God, slow to anger, abounding in love and faithfulness, maintaining love to the thousands, and forgiving wickedness, rebellion, and sin. Yet he does not leave the guilty unpunished. He punishes the children and their children for the sin of the fathers to the third and fourth generation. Moses bowed to the ground at once and worshipped. This is God's word. For the past uh, few months, we've been looking at the life of Moses in the book of Exodus. And before we really get into the sermon, I want to kind of bring us all together as to where we really are in the book of Exodus. The first part of Exodus begins with salvation. It's what we largely uh, attribute the book of Exodus to be about, salvation. And then the second part of Exodus takes us to the law of God. God rescues his people, gives them the law, but the book doesn't stop there. The book ends with worship. See, if the book is just about, if Exodus is really just about rescue, salvation, it would have been not for, for, for not for Israel, uh, for the Israelites, because without law, without any purpose, without direction, without guidance and leading, they would have ended up as a slave, at the least as a slave to something else, or they would have perished, they would have died. That's why God gives them the law, for protection, for identity, for purpose. And the law tells them, you know, I rescued you with a purpose. And there's an end to all of this. And that end, that purpose is worship. All the way back to the earliest part of the book, as we started this series, God tells Moses, if, you read, if you've ever watched the Charlton Heston version of the Exodus, the Ten Commandments, 
God says, Moses, tell the people, let my people go. And he stops there. But that's actually not what he says. He actually says, if you read the scriptures, he actually says, Moses, tell the Pharaoh, let my people go so that they may worship me. So that they may worship me. That's the purpose. And in chapter 34, verse 8, after God passes by, after Moses has this incredible encounter with God, what happens? Moses catches this glimpse of God, this true essence, the essence of freedom, the essence of joy, and he worships. He bows and he worships. Three points today. Why do we need the glory of God? What it is, and how do you get it? Why we need it, what it is, how do you get it? First, why do we need the glory of God? Why do we need it? Chapter 32, just because of context, Moses is, is up on this mountain in Sinai. He's receiving the law. And as he makes his way back, he realizes that the Israelites have turned, uh, really turned back to the gods of the Egyptians. They make this golden calf, very famous story. And um, what they did was it's their, it's their attempt to try to get back in touch with these old Egyptian gods. And Moses returns and he sees this. He sees that they violated the law. And he knows that they're going to die. They deserve to die. So what does he do? He goes to God and he intercedes to God on behalf of his people. And, and God forgives them. And in chapter 33, I'm going to paraphrase verses 1 to 6. We just read verses 1 to 6. God says, you know, these people, they keep trampling on my heart. And so here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to send you an angel, an angel, and uh, I'm going to put you in the land that I promised. And I'm going to make you successful in every way, economically, politically, every way. But I will not go with you. My presence will not go with you. I will not be there. The actual word for presence is penai. It says my face will not be there. Mainly what he's saying is I'm going to give you peace. I'm going to give you all the things you asked for. I'm going to give you peace. I'm going to give you prosperity. I'm going to give you success. But I'm not going to give you me. And Moses says, no. He pleads with him. He says, no. Verse 15, he says, if your face, if your presence, Penaive, if it does not go with us, do not send us up from here. That's what he says. What does that mean now? When Moses says, don't even send us there unless you go with us. What he's saying is, we're going to shrivel. We're going to dry up. We're going to die. We're going to die without you. We need you. It's not just about the wealth. It's not just about the power. If we do not have your presence, if we do not have your face, we're better off dead. Now, on one hand, you can sense God everywhere. We always say God is everywhere. You go up to the Grand Canyon or you just take a a nice hike, let's say. You know when you stare out there, there's just a sense that there's something more to life. There's someone there. You sense the presence of God. Psalm chapter 19 says, all of creation, all of nature speaks with a wordless truth. You just know it. You just sense it. But Moses here is saying that there's a, there's a difference between just believing in God that way and really experiencing, really getting, really having, really having his presence, experiencing the pleasure of his presence in a really deeply intimate way. Because in reality, we're built to see the glory of God and to praise God. That's why we're built. But why were we built that way? Why were we built that way? We think, you know, God, he must be like us. God must have this tremendously large ego and he must be really insecure 
to create people like us, to build us so that we could worship Him and glorify Him. Because really, that's why we build. That's why we create. It's to feed our ego. It's to feed, you know, our innovative qualities, our creative qualities. We really use them in a way to feed our egos, which is why we try to step all over people to get ahead, which is why when we sense there's somebody better than us, it makes us feel so insecure and so small, and that's why we work and we work and we work to get ahead again. That's what we're doing. We build, we create in a way that it feeds our ego because deep inside we sense loneliness and aloneness. We're alone in the world, and so we have to protect ourselves. And we have to find ourselves, discover ourselves. We need to be sufficient, self-sufficient. We need to feel accomplished. We need to experience love. Now, if God was like us and he was alone in the universe, then yes, creation would have been the first opportunity for him to experience all those things, such as love and security. That's absolutely true. But God is not alone. The biblical God is triune. The biblical God is three, three persons in one, a trinity. We call it the trinity, which means that from before creation, all the way stretching out into eternity, you know, in John chapter 17, Jesus prays this great prayer. We call it the high priestly prayer to his father right before he dies, really. And here's what he prays. He says, Father, glorify me in your presence with the glory that I had with you before creation, before the world began. Then he prays this. He says, Father, I want those you've given me to be with me where I am, to see my glory. He says, Father, glorify me in your presence, the way that you have done for all eternity, from before the world began, and I want these people, I want them, these people that you've given me to be with me to see that glory. Here's Jesus, absolutely loving the Father. He's absolutely affirming who God is. He's beautiful. He's glorious. He's he's got tremendous gifts and strength. Think about that. There's nothing more wonderful than to be affirmed by the person that you love and the person who loves you. Nothing more beautiful than that. Nothing more wonderful than to experience that. To, to affirm one another's gifts, one, affirm one another's strengths and your beauty and you're loving each other and you're enjoying each other and you're building each other up. Now, we do it very scantily with one another. We, we're very stingy with that type of affirmation. But it's really what you do when you love. When you love someone, that's what you do. You build each other up. You're enjoying, you're appreciating, you're loving, you're celebrating one another's presence, deep intimacy. The more intimate you get, the more you celebrate, the more you affirm, the more you build. If there's not much intimacy, there's not much appreciation. There's not much celebration there. There's, it's, it's what you do when you love. So there's, you do that without jealousy. You do that without envy, with total contentment and total commitment. That's love. There's no hint of malice. Even the brokenness is kept at bay. Now, if it's true that God is triune, then when he says, let us create man in our image, it's not because he lacked community. It's not because he's insecure, but it's because he's secure. It's not because he lacked community. It's because he had intimate community, the greatest community, glory. And because he's already perfect in love, Perfect in community, perfect in glory. Jesus says, Father, I want them to be with me. I want them to be with me. The only reason why God created us is not because he needed it. Not because he's insecure, because he needed it. 
but he wanted to share it. He wanted to open it up. That, that in many ways, exp- it's an expression of his glory. Continues to complete himself in that sense. And Moses knew that. You know, God created us not because we needed it, but because he wanted to share it. Moses knew that the glory of God is what we were made for. We were made in that glory. We were made for that glory. And so he says, if you do not go with us, don't send us. We're already dead. If you're not there with me, and this is what I was made for, to be with you, then my life is over. It's meaningless, no matter what you give us, no matter what I have. Moses wanted that experience. He wanted to savor the presence of God, the glory of God in his life. Jesus wanted that for his people. You know, in many ways, because of the way we're built, that's why we like to climb mountains. You ever wonder, where did that desire come from? To see beauty out there like that, to experience those pleasures, those natural pleasures. I take my nephew out at night, even if for a brief moment, he looks up and he says, even as a child, no one taught him to see that as beauty. He says, he says the stars, the moon, that's what he says. This is glorious. Even for a child, we're built that way. It's why in every work of art, there's some of us who look at that, we just marvel at it, marvel at the creativity. Every great book you read, you don't sit there and analyze the book and say, well, I could never have done that. You don't do that. You just marvel at the beauty of the book. You watch a great movie, a great work of art. You sing a wonderful hymn or you hear it being played. And you say, wow, that's beautiful. That's transcendent. It's why it's every great natural wonder of the world. You stand before it. You don't just say, well, that's pretty cool. You don't do that. You look at that. And it creates a greater longing for more. There's this resolution that we're looking for, a finish that we're really looking for. And Moses, he knew that because he's standing before God in his presence. And he says, I need you. He doesn't sit there and say, wow, this is, this is pretty nice. He says, I need you. I want that with me forever. I'm longing for that. It's also the reason why we're so much desiring the perfect job, the perfect marriage, our nice homes. You know, the philosopher, Plato, the great philosopher, in many ways a founder of Western philosophy, so to speak, he writes about the concept of the archetype, that in every beauty, there's the essence of beauty. So when you see a beautiful person, what you're really looking for, it creates a deeper longing that you don't even sense yourself at times, but you're longing for the deeper beauty. Plato understood that, the perfect embodiment of that archetype. You're always looking for something more beautiful and more beautiful and more beautiful. You see something amazing, you want to see something more amazing. We're addicted to that. You know why? Because deep in our hearts, there's a restlessness until we find the perfect embodiment of that. And Moses has found it. David, in Psalm chapter 16, printed in your call to worship this morning, he says, in your face, there is the fullness of joy. In your presence, I have the fullest experience of joy. This is what we were built for. That's why we need it, because we were built for that. All that to say we were built for that. What is it? What does it mean to experience glory? In verses 15 to 18, I'm just going to summarize this. Moses says, you know, if if you're not present here with us, don't send us. Because how's anyone going to know that you love us if you don't go with us? How are we going to be distinct from all the other nations in the world? 
how are we really going to be set apart? How are we really going to be holy, distinct from other people? We need your glory. We need your presence. Verse 18, Moses says, now show me your glory. And verse 19, God says, okay, I will. But, verse 20, you cannot see my face. Moses says, show me your glory. That the word there, the, the Hebrew word there is kavod. Show me your glory, kavod. Verse 20, God says, but you cannot see my face. I will, but you can't see my face. That word face there is penai. They're actually similar words. They actually have very similar meanings, kavod and glory. In other words, uh, there's this sense, uh, the word kavod means weight, substance, weight, heaviness. Moses says, I want to see all of your heaviness. God says, you can, but you cannot see to the fullest part, to the fullest revelation, you cannot see my face. It will be too heavy for you. That's what God is saying. In other words, you can know that God exists in your life, yes. But once you begin to realize that he is absolutely real in a way that he's more significant than anything else in your life, that is weighty. To know that God exists, that's not very weighty. There's no glory there. But to know that he is the most, once you encounter him in a real way, you realize he is more real than anything I've pursued. And that makes him more significant than anything else I pursue in my life. That becomes very pressing. It becomes very weighty on us. There's substance there. The average person's God, the average person's view of God, he's, not, he's present, but he's not very weighty. He's not very heavy in our lives, not very significant. But when it dawns on you, who God is. This God is above anything that I like or dislike. This God is above all that. This God is more real than anything I know that's real. This God argues with me. I couldn't have created him because we don't create anything that actually argues with us. This God argues with me. This God, I disagree with at times. I realize I didn't make up this God. That's when you realize I need to submit to this God. Moses, verse 8, chapter 34. He bows down and he worships. Once you realize that God is more important than anything else, that his presence is substantial, that you need him, that he's no longer on the outskirts of your life, when you, that's when you experience his glory, what you're saying is nothing else matters. Everything else is negotiable. At one point, God was negotiable. Everything else mattered. But now when you've encountered a real God, you realize everything else is negotiable and it's God that matters forever. God is the one that's non-negotiable. That's weight. Moses saw it. Moses says, I need it. I need you to see your glory. I need to see you. I want to see your face. So the word glory, kavod, similar to the word face, means weightiness, substantive. But the word face, think about it this way. I'm going to talk about it very practically. When you start singles, when you're interested in somebody, at one point, that person was in your life, and you're like, whatever, right? They're just there. You know they're there. You know they probably sat next to you many times. But at some point, you start to have feelings for that person. You start to love this person. You start to get to know this person in a deeper way, and you want more of this person. What happens? You want to, you want to see them all the time. You want to see their face. You want to see their eyes. You want to be able to talk to them face to face. You want their presence in your life, right? That's what happens. Uh, I'll say it another way, you know, and the reason why is because you really want their closeness, you really want intimacy, you want connection. When you see a friend, right, someone you haven't seen in a while, what's the first thing you do? You look at their face. 
You go, hey, and you look out to embrace them, but you look at them eye to eye. No one sees a friend that they haven't seen in a while, a close friend that they haven't seen in a while, and, and, and stares at the ground. No one does that. Who's, when's the last time you've ever done that? You don't do that. I'll see it another way. If you're angry at somebody, spouses, you get angry at your wives, you're angry at your husbands, right? You get angry at somebody. What happens? The first thing you do, no, no, what do you do? Get out of my face. Because what you're saying is there's a distance. You slam the door, right? There's a distance. You will not see my face. Because a face in every culture through history is a relational gate, the access point to intimacy. That's what the face is. And so when Moses says, show me your glory, God says, I will. I will pass by. But you cannot see the full... I want to be intimate with you. In fact, he brings the, the leaders of Israel in chapter 24... After giving them the law, he brings them together and, and he feeds them, which is a sign of intimacy. He's nourishing them. He's with them. But they don't see his face. They see his feet. And they say his feet. They come back and they say his feet were glorious. That's what they said. They said it was like sapphire. That's what they said. Here he says, Moses, I'm going to do you one better. You get to see my back. But you cannot see my face. I cannot show you the fullest extent. I cannot show you my face. Moses desires that, that closeness, the entry gate to the relationship, right? The whole idea behind experiencing the face of God is when you, when you look at somebody to their face, you're speaking to them, right? God is, Moses is saying, I want you in my life. I want you to speak into my life. I want you to shape my life. I want to be close to you in a way that you, I'm being shaped by you. I want to see your glory. I want to see your beauty every day. That's where my satisfaction is. That's where contentment is. God's speaking into me. And so when Moses, really what he's doing, he's praying. He's saying, show me your glory. He's praying. But he's delighting. He's delighting in God. Let's put it all together. When you read the Bible, when you hear a sermon, when you're connecting community group and you're reading something, and we all know that God is present. We all know that God is there. But the moment that you sense that God is speaking into you through his word, all of a sudden, his presence didn't matter before, maybe even just in the last hour. But now it becomes real. It becomes weighty in your life. It's sitting on your heart, and you know it, and it starts to shape you. And you want more. You want more of that beauty. You want more of his face. What's your prayer life like? When you pray, what do you do? Are you just praying for things? Moses, you know, he's not like he's staring in an abyss, some darkness, and, you know, and, and he knows where he is. He knows who he's talking to. He's staring into the beauty of God. And he says, you know, like the Grand Canyon, the way we stand in front of the Grand Canyon, we say, wow, this is so much, to, it's overwhelming. We say what? It's breathtaking. Moses is saying, I'm standing before the beauty presence of God. It's breathtaking. It's what, uh, you know, there's a place in Boston, uh, when I lived in Boston, there was this place called Magnolia that I used to trek through. To get to Magnolia, you had to drive, first of all, about an hour outside of Boston, and then you got to park your car in some remote spot, and then you got to walk into this gateway in the woods, and you got to trek through, and there's really no guide. It's one of those things that people just know when they're up there. you got to trek through. There's kind of like a man-made trail because so many people have been through it. But you start to trek through, and on a dark night, you know, it's, it's creepy. It's very, there's no lights. So you track through with a flashlight. You kind of make your way around, and there's, you know, there's 
tons of places where you can get, there's thorns and there's thistles and there's places where you can trip over. But once you kind of break through, there's a clearing in. You gotta, then you've got to do a little bit of rock climbing. You climb up onto this rock, and when you stand out, there's the entire north shore. And it's beautiful. It's breathtaking. You kind of sit there, and there's waves crash against this rock. You know, it's the north shore, you know, crashing against the rock. And you stand there in the darkness, and it's breathtaking. And you can see the Romantic poets, they believed that in every aspect of nature as they stand out, there's this deeper sense of reality that is yet to be consummated, yet to be fully experienced and known. And that's why they scaled mountaintops. Here's Moses on a mountaintop. You know, those Romantic poets, they just experienced the taste of the glory without even knowing Moses is standing in the presence of God, and he says, I need you. C.S. Lewis once thought, he, he said, he used to think that God is very egotistical to ask us to glorify him. But then he realized that, you know, people, they praise whatever they value. It's just the natural, we're built to worship, built to just praise naturally. We praise anything that we value. You have parents constantly talking about their kids. That's how you know what they, you know, that's because they glory in their kids. Right? They value their kids so much, it's to the point of glory. We praise anything that we glorify, that we value. And we are constantly urging other people to join in all at the same time. That's what we're doing. And so it could be anything. You meet a celebrity. Guys, guess what? Because you're standing in the presence in your mind of something glorious. I mean, we take selfies, right, with celebrities, you know, oftentimes the celebrities at a distance because we want to say, I was close. That's what we're doing, right? You find somebody incredibly attractive, what do you do? Do you just keep it to yourself? No, the first thing you do is you say, yo, I met this person, or I saw this person, right? That's what we do. And you know there's a glory to that person because when they come near to you and talk to you, you wanna, you, you, your legs start to shake, you want to run. That's the first inclination, that's the first instinct that we have. You hear a great speech, you watch something amazing, uh, even in sports, an amazing play. It could be anything, a talented musician, re- a great writer, a good stock ticker that you found, that you, you, the first thing you do, you want to praise it. You want to share it. You want to share it with other people. You get that? You say, isn't this amazing? Um, enjoy an amazing meal. Like we can go on. Enjoy an amazing meal, a rare wine. You're on vacation, and you, t- you look at the water. You say, isn't this glorious? You're on a first date. You're going to meet somebody that you know could change your life. You're holding your newborn for the first time. Coming to the Lord. We say, this is glorious. You say, look, listen, I've got to share this with you. We're built that way. We can't help but praise things that we value, praise things that we enjoy, because the praise doesn't just express the joy. It completes the joy. John Piper says, he takes really the first question in the catechism. And he says, the chief end of man is not just to glorify God and enjoy him forever. The chief end of man is to glorify God by what? By enjoying him forever. In God commanding us to glorify him, he's inviting us really to enjoy him. The weightiness of who he is. The beauty of who he is. The substance of who he is the intimacy of who he is, the majesty of who he is, the kingliness of who he is, his beauty. That's what it is. So we talked about why we need it. We're built that way. We can't live without that glory. 
We talked about what it is, its weight, its substance, its significance, to know that God is more significant, more important than anything else, the only non-negotiable in our lives. No matter how much you value anything, how do you get it? God has invited us in to enjoy it. How do you get the presence of God? It's the last point, getting it. I'm going to begin with a question, really. Why do you want it? I talked about why we need it. Why do you want it? Why do you want the presence of God? Why do you want to see his glory? Verse 15. Did Moses say in verse 15, if your presence does not go with us, do not send us up from here because that's not going to make me feel good because that makes me feel really, really bad about myself. Is that what he said? No, that's not what he said. Think about this. Moses says, what else is going to distinguish the truth, the fact that I am yours? How do I know? I mean, what's going to separate me from anybody else? What's going to separate our people, my people, from any other people in the world? Unless you are with us. That's what he says. Unless you set us apart, make us holy. Moses says, I don't want to spend my life arguing with people, convincing people, trying to convince people about who you are who don't believe who you are. I don't want to do that. They need to be compelled the way I was compelled. They need to encounter you the way I encountered you. They need to be captivated by your beauty the way I am captivated by your beauty. So I want to be your treasure. I want to be set apart. I want to be distinct with your beauty in a way that's so different from the rest of the world that the world will see you through it. The world will know you, want your glory, want your beauty too. Our people need to be so distinct and set apart and so glorious in that that people will see that. See that in its unity, in its purpose, and say, I want that too. I want that beauty. I want that presence too. Why do you want God's presence in your life? A lot of us, we come to God because we just want things. Most of our prayer, number one, there's nothing wrong with praying for things. We need to pray for things. God is our giver. God is compassionate and he's gracious. But the thing is, for most of us, that's all we pray for, for things. You're really just coming to God because the things are the things that you, won't, you don't want to negotiate. Why do you want God's glory in his presence? Number two, the second part of this, another question. We tend to ask then, all right, what do we have to give up? <laughs> what do we have to give up? Here in this text, uh, verses 4, 5, and 6, you see it three times. The word ornaments are mentioned. The people didn't wear ornaments. They were told not to wear ornaments. They did not put on any ornaments. They took off, they stripped off their ornaments. If you think about it, what happened right before this passage, the Israelites came together and they made a golden calf. You know how they made the golden calf? They took off all their ornaments, they stripped themselves down, all their gold, and they actually do- do- donated it uh, to build this, to make this golden calf. So all the sum of their wealth really was put into this calf that they wanted to grave as an image, a graven image, uh, as their God, as God, really. That's what they wanted to do. And God later says, uh, as he's teaching about building the tabernacle, he says, what I want you to do is I want you to take all that gold that's been donated, I want you to put it into the tabernacle. Everything in the tabernacle is gold-plated. So he takes their gold and does that. Why does he do that? Because if you don't understand it well, you get very confused about God and, 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 and the whole meaning of church and all this, all this stuff. God's, this is God's way of saying, you know, I want you to take all that gold and use it for the tabernacle. And all, the, and all these things in the tabernacle were gold-plated. Why? It's God's way of saying, if you're really going to experience the glory of God, if you really want to experience my presence, 
You need to deal with your wealth. You need to deal with how you see your money. Every one of us. Now, time is money, so I'm going to kind of put this together. If you really want to experience the presence of God, you need to deal with your time, and you need to deal with your wealth, your money. What are ornaments? Ornaments are these things that we wear every day, right? Or you put on something every day to make those things look attractive, to make ourselves look attractive. He actually itemizes the earrings and bracelets. We put these things on to highlight particular parts that we want to cover and so turn something bad into something good, right? Or we put these things on to make ourselves look more attractive, whether we're covering something up or just highlighting something that we like, right? That's what ornaments are. And uh, ultimately what God is saying here is your ornaments, your gold, your money, you're using this to cover over the fact that you are broken, that you're incredibly flawed. The thing is, nothing can make you attractive. Nothing can take away your sin. Nothing can cover over who you really are. God is saying, you know, we, think about this. We put money only in things that we, uh, that we serve. We put money in things that we serve. Your wealth, the way you, the way you spend your money, it shows you who your real gods, gods are. That's what it is. That's what money is. The things that you really look to for a sense of worth. The things that you really look to for significance. God is saying, uh, these people, they need to take off their ornaments. What, are they, what is he saying? Does he, is it because he needs money? No. What he's saying is, you are coming to me, really to you, using your wealth, your ornaments, to make yourself to be more attractive than you are. That's what we do. Think about where you spend your time and where you spend your money. Think about what it goes into. It goes into things that we think, right, uh, are, are real gods. They're the things that we believe. We invest in things that we believe are going to give us a sense of worth, make us significant. Time's like that too. Our time shows us, where we spend our time shows us what we look to for significance, what we look to for security, what we look to for a sense of worth. Besides God, aside from God in our world. In other words, one of the things that blocks us from really getting the glory of God in our lives is that we look to other things for glory. Simply put, we just look to other things for glory. We, we look at other things that are beautiful and we pursue those things instead and we invest in those things. It could be our career. We invest in our career all of our time. And what happens is God says, the reason why the Sabbath is there, it's his way of teaching us that when you do that and you pour all of your life into that, every other part of your life will start to corrode and eventually you will corrode and there will be such a distance and a chasm until ultimately there is the ultimate chasm, the ultimate distance. That's what happens. And you're just going to be working, right, for that, breaking down in every way. We're looking to other things for glory. Think about how we spend our money, how we spend our time. You know, I'm going to give you a couple examples, or maybe one example. I never had a time, I never had a problem spending money on books. You know, books are relatively cheap, right? I never had any time spending any expense on books or gadgets, those two things. Now, why is that the question? And this is how pathetic. I'm going to show you a very pathetic side of my life, okay? When people come over to my house, my library used to be actually on the first floor the moment you walk into my house. I moved it. You know, I moved it to, you know, so it's away, you know. 
But when people come to my house, the first thing they see is my library. And, the first, and if you're a seminary student, you, walk, you come in and you say, wow, you read all the right books. That's what seminary students, they don't care how many books you have because they have lots of books, right? But they want to see what you read. They say, wow, you're reading all the right books. Laymen come to my house and they say, wow, you are so well read. Look at all these books that you've read. Look at all the people that you quote. That's what they say. I don't know if they really say that, but that's, you know, I think that's what they say, right? Now, my response there is I say, you know, thank you. You know, I, I, I really like reading is a hobby. I really like reading and you know, stuff like that. But on the inside, two things. One, I'm incredibly shy naturally. So I actually spend a lot of time just reading. That's actually the real reason I got into books, right? But the second thing is I'm saying, you know, people say, wow, you're so well read. You read so much. You must be so smart. I say, I know. I know I'm smart. I read a lot more than you, obviously. I'm very smart. You see that? Do you hear my heart? In a sense, the books are like my golden calf. They're what I look to besides God to know that I matter, to know that I'm significant, to know that I'm worthy. Very pathetic, right? Gadgets. Gadgets. Materialistic things. Let's talk about material things. You know, I don't know, for women, what, what's, a, what's an equivalent for a gadget for a guy? You know, something that you, you carry around with you that is not very important and people spend exorbitant amounts of money for no real reason when it, doesn't ser- it only serves particular functions, like a purse, I suppose, or something like that, right? right? Material things, right? It starts, for me, it started very young. It begins with, uh, when I was a kid, the big rave was Cabbage Patch dolls. Everybody had a Cabbage Patch doll when I was in first grade, except for me. I didn't have a Cabbage Patch doll, Right? That moved into Transformers and G.I. Joes, the latest ones. Everyone had to have the latest ones, you know. I didn't have many of those. I had some. I didn't have many. And then that moved into video game consoles, right? You know, you start out with the Atari 2600, and then, you know, my generation at least, then you got the, you know, Super Mario Brothers with Nintendo, and then, you know, PlayStation and the Wii, and then now you have, like, the Kinect, you know, the Xbox and all that kind of stuff. Now, and then, for me, I moved right into the Macintosh, you know, and then from that point on, it, it set up a trajectory of uh, poverty and bankruptcy for the rest of my life. I mean, every time something new comes out, I'm standing in line. I'm, I'm, you know, I'm up till 3 in the morning clicking the refresh button you know, so that I can make these purchases. We're addicted to these things, right? Why do I do that? Why do I buy these gadgets? You know why? I have to think about this, but it's really true. Because you know, nowadays, you need a nice smartphone to keep you connected. And you want to get the best one that's going to keep you the most connected, to make you most knowledgeable, to keep you sharp. You want to do that in an efficient way, in a way that I can use, you know, because I'm actually very dumb with, when it comes to technology. Um, it helps me to keep up. That's what it does. You know, there's this passage in Acts chapter 17, verses 20 to 21. Paul is actually in Ephesus. Uh, he's, he's there with these incredibly brilliant people. And verse 20 to 21, it actually says that the people that Paul is speaking to there, they were there, all they gathered at this place really to keep up with the latest ideas, the latest trends. But then in verse 30, Paul says, God says, you're ignorant. That's your ignorance talking. You know why? Because that's how you look for your sons of worth. That's how you, keeping up, keeping up, no matter which way, no matter how shallow, no matter how deep, that's where your security is. And when you don't have that, when you don't have the iPhone 6 Plus, you feel empty. So some of us, it's probably a lot less material. It's your children. 
And so here you are, you're neglecting the spiritual state of your home, but you're pouring into your child, and you see that, you're, you feel like you're living up to your responsibility. As long as my child is safe, as long as he's flourishing and thriving. Gosh, children, careers, all these things. These are golden calves that we're pouring into. That's what we're doing. And God says, I want you to bring them to me. It's going to be placed in the tabernacle where I am central. Worship. That's the meaning of the gold. That's why he wants the gold. The main ways that, we really, that really help us to spiritually focus on God is one, number one, you've got to watch what you're doing with your time and your money. But secondly, you need to share it. You need to give it. Because what's interesting here is that by forcing yourself to give, because when it hurts, you don't want to give. Your natural instinct when something hurts is to reel back. But when you force, it's counterintuitive. When you force yourself to give, not only does it become an expression of your faith in God because you realize, wow, I really need, look look how much of a grip money has on me. I realize I need to be even more dependent on the gospel, more dependent on Christ as, the re, as, my, as my definition of security and worth. But when you do it, the more you do it, it actually helps you to believe. It actually strengthens, strengthens your belief. Moses' prayer is, now show me your glory. What do you pray for? Yeah, we need to pray for our needs, but what Moses is praying for you know what his prayer was? I want this community, the church, so to speak. That's what he was praying for. Your glory. We want your glory so that we can show the world that glory. Can you pray? Can you make it your prayer to show my church your glory in this city so that the city can see your glory and then practice that? That's, that's the prayer. How do you practice that? How do you put your money where your mouth is? You get it? You got to give. That's how we do it. You see that? Now, Moses prays, show me your glory. The Lord says, I'm going to show you all my goodness. Verse 19, I'm going to show you all my goodness. To see all of his goodness is to see his glory. And Moses, he places Moses in the cleft of this rock, and God passes by. And Moses didn't see like bright lights, flashing lights. Rather, he heard something. It wasn't so much what he, what he saw, it's what he heard. And this is the essence of God's glory. Chapter 34, verses 5 to, five to 8, I'm going to show you verse 6 to 7. He says, the Lord, the Lord. Whenever you see God or anybody repeating something in the Hebrew in a doublet, referring to a person, the Lord, the Lord, it means they are passionate. They are emotional about it. He says, the Lord, the Lord. What is he emotional about? I am compassionate and gracious. I am forgiving, and yet I will not leave the guilty unpunished. That's what he says. There's a lot there. There's a lot I could say about this. I could spend an entire sermon just talking about that. Today we're going to focus on what he's saying here. He says, I am absolutely forgiving, and yet I'm absolutely punishing. I will love you, and I will love you, and I will love you, and I will destroy, and I will punish, and I will not let anything go. You want to see the essence of God? You want to see the glory of God? You want to see the beauty of God? He says, I am so loving, I will will not let anyone die. And yet I am so just, I will not let any evil go. In other words, why can't, why why is it that people, uh, everybody gets let go? He says, because I'm good. And then he says, why will I not let anyone go? He says, because I'm good. 
I'm going to let everyone go. I'm going to let nobody go. That's all of me. Do you get it? (laughs) Do you get it? He says, that's all of me, my glory, my essence. Now, when we look at that in our Western civilized minds, in this either-or philosophical generation, right, in our world, in our Western world, is bound by the either-or, we say, well, God can't be both. God's either loving or he's just. He's either forgiving, right, or he's punishing. He can't be, how can he be both to the same person? How can he be both? In John chapter 1, we read, and the word became flesh and dwelt among us. His presence was with us, and we beheld his glory. Moses only got the back side of God. But in Jesus Christ, we get full access. We get to experience God in full. Why? When Jesus Christ came to earth, from all eternity to eternity, he knew the face of God. He saw the face of God. Hebrews chapter 1 says he is the face of God. He is the exact representation of his glory, his radiance. He had the glory. In John chapter 17, he says, glorify me in your presence. It's God glorifying Jesus. Jesus glorifying the Spirit. The Spirit glorifying God and the Father. The Spirit glorifying Jesus. Jesus glorifying the Spirit. Jesus glorifying God. He says, glorify me in your presence the way you've always glorified me. But on the cross, he says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? That's what he says. I've had the glory. I am the glory. I am the fullest perfect embodiment of the glory of God, and yet God has departed from me. That's what he says. On the cross, Jesus lost the face of God. Jesus lost the intimacy. Jesus lost the connection. Jesus lost the glory. Jesus lost the beauty. In fact, he was beaten to a pulp by the time he got to the cross. There was beauty, ultimate beauty was marred. And as a result, we, Jesus became cosmically insignificant Left for dead. Why? So that we can have significance. Even though we are broken, even though we are flawed, even though we are riddled with sin, we are significant in the Father because Jesus became insignificant. On the cross, Jesus says, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? What he's saying is, God, I want to see your glory. That's what he's saying. But the glory became absent. The presence was gone. You know, that's hell. That's the definition of hell. Some of us are here, and we've been damaged over our lives because you've been ignored. You're the one that's always passed over. You live life experiencing cycles of rejection in your life, maybe because you're personally flawed, maybe because, you know, you feel unattractive in your life. And the reason why you feel that way is because, actually, you're made for glory. You're a reflection. You're, you, God has created you in his image. And so you're made for glory, but it's a broken, like a broken mirror. It's a broken image. And so we're made for glory, we're made for beauty, we're made for majesty, and yet we don't feel that way. Do you know that even though, you you know, we're created with dignity, but nobody experienced the kind of rejection that Jesus experienced. Jesus lost the face of God. That's hell. Complete separation from God. Distance from God. Why? So that we can hear words in the benediction, the Lord make his face shine upon you. We can have the face of God. We can have intimacy with God. We can have a relationship with God. Jesus says, I've lost my relationship. We are one. Heaven, 
was torn apart. Jesus Christ, the Father, and the Son ripped apart in heaven, right? Why? So that we could be reconciled to God. God says, that is my essence. I am absolutely loving, absolutely forgiving, and yet I will not let evil go unpunished. I poured it all out on my son. Somebody has to pay. Anybody here who's been wrong knows that when somebody wrongs you, they have to pay. You feel that way. God says, I'm just, you were made in God's image. God says, somebody, you have to pay. Jesus paid the price. Without Jesus, there's only one of two ways you can look at God. You're going to look at God as all-loving, or you're going to look at God as all-just. And that's going to shape the way, it's going to shape your character. If you see God as all-loving, it's great, but it's not very glorious. Think about this. Okay, guys, men, right? Woman comes up to you. Oh, somebody you've been dreaming about comes to you and says, I want to know you. I want to get to know you deeper. How do you feel? You're going to feel amazing. That, that, those words shape your confidence because here's this person that you absolutely want to get close to and they say, I want to get close to you. It puts you on top of the world. You have this feeling of transcendence. Nothing can stop you now. That's how you feel, right? You ever watch Love Actually? There's that little kid, the drummer boy, right? He's really, he's in love with this girl, this beautiful singer, right? And she's singing that Christmas song from Mariah Carey, right? I, you know, and she's singing at the end. You know, all, he, he did all of that. Why? Just so he could be close to her, so she could notice him. And here he's drumming, and they're playing, they're performing, and she says, at the end, she says, all I want for Christmas is you. And she points to him, and he goes, he lights up, and then she goes, and you, and you, and you, and you. That's, that's what she does, right? That's what she says. Think about it. If this woman comes to you and says, I want to be with you, you puts you on top of the world until you realize, what if she says, yeah, I want to be with you, and you, and you. You don't feel special. You're deflated. God just being loving is not glorious. Just being loving is not glorious. There was no cost. God just being just is an amazing thing. Evil will not go unpunished. But that's not going to shape you either. Because you're going to have to work to stay in his favor. There's nothing glorious about that. You're going to work and you're going to labor. You're going to pay. One way or another, you're going to pay. There's no glory there. It's not going to shape you. But to know that Jesus went the distance, to know that Jesus paid the price, to know that he lost connection, to know that he was separated from the Father, that heaven and hell were literally kept, hell was kept at bay and heaven was ripped apart at the seams for your sake. That is glorious. That is glorious. Behold Jesus. You know, it doesn't take work to behold What's the application here? I'll tell you the application. Fix your eyes on Christ. Look to Christ. Look to the cross. The one thing that in your body, you know, all the things that we do require certain types of skills, but one of the things that takes no skill is to see, right? If you're able to see, you just look to the cross. Behold, we beheld his glory. It doesn't take any work to behold. You either behold or you don't. If you're trying to behold, you don't behold. You see, you don't believe. Take Jesus out, no glory. But Jesus, let Jesus in, it's going to shape your life. There, there it is. That's the gospel. That's what it is. Bring Jesus in, you're going to find what you've been looking for your entire lives. Do you believe that? Let's pray.